Yo, welcome to another episode of the Scholarships Podcast, man. Uh, thank God, you know, we made it out of 2023. Uh, 2024 has been nothing but blessing so far. Uh, you know, we've continued to grow. We've learned a lot from last year. And uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone that's continued to tap in, continue to help us creatively, you know, give us guest suggestions, things like that. I mean, our network has grown. And uh, I just really feel like we're making a change that uh, we can't really see, but we we feel it. And I think that's all you ever need. You know, and honestly, we're just blessed to be here. But, yeah, it's only right that we kick off 2024 with, a, you know, a, basically a family member of ours, Jasmine Adams. Uh, you know, we went to Marquette with her and, you know, she's been nothing but gracious and, and loving and caring for us uh, as we grew up and as we molded into who we are today. You know, Jasmine currently is a program director at OTO Clinomics in Milwaukee in the department of otolaryngology. Y'all don't understand how much I had to Google that uh, that term. It's a, one of those scrabble words that I guess you'll get like 100 points for. Basically, it's the study of diseases in the ear and throat. So, you know, if you if you're wondering what that is, what I just said, go ahead. But yeah, otolaryngology and communication sciences at Medical College of Wisconsin. So she's actually a big deal. She's always been a big deal. That's, I'm not saying anything most people don't know. And during this conversation, we'll touch on a number of topics, which range from, you know, navigating the workplace, balancing your identity, and just honestly maintaining a steady head in this world. In all, it's a great conversation to listen to. Uh, she has a great perspective. And, you know, Jasmine has known us like most of our adult lives. So, you know, me and Larry are in the process of drafting some NDAs and so none of these stories of young Tony, young Larry get out <laughs> from her at least. Uh, but yeah, with that being said, I just want to kick it off and just again say thank you. And yeah, hope you enjoy the conversation. No, Jasmine, thank you for uh, joining the podcast. Uh, it's been, I mean, we took a little break just because life happens and whatnot. And like you're one of our first interviews, so it's it's dope because you're your family. You've always been family. You've always been real since day one. So having you on, I know it's been like a bunch of uh, issues with uh, scheduling and things like that. And us just even updating ourselves on what exactly you do. Because I think we talk enough where like we forget that you actually are in a professional role, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, your college friends become people and you're just like, damn. Yeah. I, like never, never saw it coming. Um, but at least for me, I never, I mean, we, me and Larry think about our college days. Right. And, and you being like, yeah, they're both lawyers. And, uh, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> we might have to sign an NDA before we get into the. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'll right before doing this, you know what I found I found the hard drive that has oh, like man. all of the videos that I took oh, of both of you, all the dancing compilations of tone. Um, Larry literally speaking into existence, him being a lawyer, like <laughs> Larry was so serious. He was like laying out his tenets and values of life. He's like, yeah, yo, you gotta, you gotta send me that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's I, dope to see it, You do need that video just to show the growth. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think you're right to your point. Like we are at that age now where like our peers are becoming like the principal of the school or like the, 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 the head yeah. coach and the, the head researcher or whatever. And it's just 
it's been funny to see because you're like, oh wait, that person is actually like the shit within their within yeah. their world. <laughs> it's not like a it's not like a uh, one of those where you're like, oh yeah, you know that's that's my guy. They're still my guys, and it's still you know uh, important to to know the distinctions. But it's definitely one of those like moments where you're like, yo, I actually got lucky with some of the people I'm I'm friends with. To start off, one of the one of the first questions we always ask is like you know, your upbringing, like, tell us about where you're from, your school experience was from, like, elementary to high school to college and so on. We'll chip in as it goes. But, yeah, just start off Start off with that. Okay. My name is Jasmine Adams. I am a native of Milwaukee. Um, I grew up in Halyard Park, um, which is about 4th and Vell Phillips. My parents still own that home, and now it's, like, a hot commodity area. It's a lot going on over there right now, a lot of redevelopment. So the first school that I went to was not a residential school or like a community school um, in that area. I didn't go to Palmer. I think that was a school I was supposed to go to. I went to um, Mount Olive Lutheran School. So I went to private school right off top, K-4. I went there until um, the fourth grade. And I was was like one of maybe three black students in the entire school. I had my first run-in with race in the third grade. I got called the N-word. became a whole big thing by somebody who, it's so odd, like, isn't, I found out later on in life, he went to Milwaukee Lutheran High School and actually was, like, in the core friend group of my now husband, Brent. <laughs> so, it's just odd. So, um, awkward at all. that is awkward, because then, <laughs> I mean, you both know that Brent and I live together, and, like, Brenda's black as well. What'd you say? I said Brenda's black. Brenda's black. (laughs) Black Brent. But yeah, so I didn't know that until like um, he came around like after college. But anyways, um, I had a run-in with race in third grade. Um, My parents started reconsidering some things about like if that environment, you know, was conducive to like my social experience and um, it would be nice to have some peers that were concordant with how I identified and um, they reconsidered and took me out, put me at Roosevelt Middle School, which was my neighborhood middle school. Uh, my parents still didn't let me walk to school. They, I still had to take the bus. Um, so I went there. And then after that, I went to I actually went to Nicolet first and um, then I got into Dominican. I found that out later. And um, went to Dominican, finished at Dominican, graduated in 2009, um, went to Marquette, where I met both of you, and graduated with a degree in psychology from there, and um, worked for a couple of years, decided to pursue my master's of public health in 2018 after receiving a lot of, I had a very weird like start to my career, it was like initiation by fire. There's a lot going on. I've worked at Rush in Chicago um, and very quickly realized that I, I it required a skill set that I just didn't have. So I had to but I had mentors were like, OK, we'll figure it out. Like we're not firing you, like figure it out. Like this is the curve, like bend and do it. So left there um, after that grant was over and came to MCW in emergency medicine was met yet again with a very mostly hostile work environment and emergency medicine moves pretty fast, but in research, it's like very different. 
It does move fast, but your responsibilities, nobody really trains you. So that kind of informed me to be like, okay, if I'm going to move up, because I, I was having this self-talk at the time where it was like, I felt like I could do my boss's job and it would really irritate me that I'll be underestimated a lot. And I was like, if I'm going to move up in academic medicine, like I have to get another degree. So that's really why I got my MPH, which is Master's of Public Health. And I went to Zilber School of Public Health to complete that took me three years. I found out, fun fact, like two days before I walked across the stage that I was pregnant with my first child, Carson, which was not planned. Um, But so I graduated from there. And then um, that was 2018. I started working at Community Advocates in Public Policy and did that from, I actually started there in 20, kind of like 2017-ish. Um, and currently I'm at the Medical College of Wisconsin pursuing my doctorate of public health, which is a DRPH is different than a PhD. PhD is rooted in research. A DRPH is rooted in practice. So I would like to, you know, inform and curate my expertise in public health practice, not just research. Um, and it's an accelerated program. I'm in my second year of that program. It's only a three-year program. So I am working on my dissertation right now for that. Let's, let's rewind a little. Let's go all the way back, I guess, uh, to your upbringing uh, and talk a little bit more about uh, just growing up in Milwaukee. Uh, talk about your pops. You know, just talk, just talk about things like that. Uh, was, was education always uh, at the forefront in your household? Uh, I guess that's my first question. Yes, it definitely has. Education has always been at the forefront of my household. Like there was never a question. I didn't I didn't ever question not being fully educated, um, especially since my father is a pharmacist. He went to Madison. Uh, he is actually one of Tone's frat brothers. He's an alpha. He pledged online by himself, which he talks about a lot. And <laughs> he... Um, yeah, he kind of just like it. He they made an environment for me where it was like, well, this is just like what you do. There wasn't there was that was the expectation. That was just a standard of like living in our house. My mother, my um, she yeah, my mother she um was an English teacher at Sarah Scott Middle School, which is no longer. It's not too far away from where we live. Knowing what my dad did, um, and then his um, people in his family are similar as well. I mean, on his side of the family are very similar, but um, it's very different because my biological mother, like the only education she received, I don't think she graduated high school. And that's kind of what I was speaking to prior to us recording was like, there's just some things that you get from education and knowing like the sacrifices to make to receive a good education, like that you can't teach. You know, you have to go through that and be aware of the environment to know, you know, what is going to pay off for you in the long run and what's not. And I feel like living in Milwaukee, like that's to me, it is very clear. But it's because I got exposure to other things. It was because I went, you know, to a private um, elementary school and then I was able to have, unfortunately, basically an identity crisis like when I went to middle school because I got there. I mean, you see my hair is a different gray, like it's very curly when I have it, you know, washed. And I got made fun of for that because like they want to put you into a box. These people will always ask me like, what are you in? 
um, I'll be like, I'm a girl. I was so ignorant from having been, you know, not exposed to that sort of environment prior that I really like believed that everybody meant good for me aside from my one interaction that I had, you know, with the boy calling me the N word in third grade. And I remember um, they're like, why do you, why do you talk so white? And I didn't know what that meant at the time. I literally said, like, you can't talk a color. That's impossible. <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? And then I learned very quickly how to adapt. And I feel like that experience really, really informed the way that I am today. Like the way that I am and I interact at work is very much how I interact at home. And I I um I had I learned not to compromise my like my adapted self, which is like the self that you have, like in your working environment to like my true self and how I truly am. Just because when I went through that time in my life, like I said, I had a bit of an identity crisis and I felt like I had to pick a side. I was very much like, I'm not picking a side. Like you can either be friends with me or you don't have to, you know, like I'm still going to like at that time I was playing a lot of sports. So I'm like, I'm still going to be on these teams and play volleyball. I'm still going to go to practice. You can choose not to talk to me or not. And it got me the friends that I have like to this day. Like you may know um, a few of them. Larry from King, like Amber Riley is still one of my good friends. I met her when I was in, um, at Roosevelt and she went to King as well. But she was like, yeah, I just remember you being like, you know, I don't care if I'm weird. Like, and she said, I like that you were weird. But at the time I wasn't very like comfortable with being like othered. These are other people talking like othered or like not being in the end crowd because they had gone to you know elementary school with these kids. And you had to be accepted. I mean, that's a very awkward age, you know, to be in or out or to be cool or not. So um, I think back to that time a lot. And I'm like proud of my younger self for um, being OK with being weird. I mean, you guys knew me in college. You know, I'm not really like that normal. I mean, I feel like it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard for people to believe that I am as scientific as I am just because like they know the real me and I am so silly. I'm so goofy. I'm very, very fun loving. Um, but I am very passionate about what I do. And I know that there's a time and a place and I know how to convey that. So um, between that and like the abrasive experience of like living in a very segregated neighborhood and like seeing that, like ooh, seeing that driving to and from Dominican once I became of age, um, that was something too that I kind of internalized as well. And I think whether I know it explicitly or not kind of informs the way I do my work and what I'm passionate about in research, which is health disparities. Um, so yeah, just, I mean, even at Marquette, like, even though I was very secure in like who I was, I remember that like keeping my headphones on, on purpose, like walking to and from class because I did not like, I didn't like hearing the the conversations that people were having like at stoplights. Like I wasn't able to like empathize or identify with them having, you know, basically these ridiculously underlying first world problems. Like, oh my gosh, like my dad really wants to go to Vail, but my mom was talking about going here. And these are like real conversations that I would hear. And it really, really bothered me. Like I would get very, very upset about not being able to identify with that. And I had a little like um, preface of that in high school when 
you know, everybody on the weekend was going up north to their cabin. I'm like, what is up north? You know, like I knew of those experiences, but I didn't actually like I couldn't identify with them. So like, what is that? It's not something that my parents like prioritized. The priority was like you get your head in these books, you go to that school for that education, you come back home and, you know, you hang out with your cousins and your grandparents and that's it. One thing that you uh, spoke about earlier was just like uh, the way you talk and the way you talk now is at work is the same way you talk at um, home. We were having a conversation yesterday. And uh, one thing that the individual said uh, to me and Larry was just that, uh, you know, he was code switching or he's good at code switching and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I guess when when did you find your voice? Like, when did you. Do you find yourself code switching ever or is it one of those things that you're just like, I'm going to talk how I talk and, you know, we'll figure it out later. When it, yeah. you know. I don't I don't pretend I don't like. Turn it on and off on purpose. I know that I have a tendency to do that. I feel like it's a natural instinct for anybody that's successful in black to like feel that they have to do that. But there's been times where I've like felt myself about to do it. And I'm like, forget this. Like I'm showing up my authentic self. Like I'll give you an example. Just this morning, I work with an MD, PhD. He's a neurotologist. We work very closely together. We had a two hour meeting prior to this recording. And we were talking about, we usually catch up on our personal lives first. And I talk no different to him than I would talk to some of my best friends. And I mean, like my candor, everything. And he appreciates me more for that, I feel like, because we, you're thinking about um, people showing up their authentic selves. You're really doing the other person a service because if they're not around people that look like you a lot, um, who also have the expertise that you do, they're going to assume that you don't when, when they hear that somebody is speaking the way that you do. You know what I mean? Like if you're speaking in not a very let's say if you're speaking in like very laxed way, right? Or whatever, you may be cursing, you may be, you know, cutting and using slang or whatever like that, right? Cutting words in half, whatever. Um, But they know like on paper and they've seen your work for what you do, like that to me is added value. Like it's like, oh, like they're taking you down, not taking you down a peg, but you don't have to be like, I feel like, you don't have to like exceed black excellence at that point. Right. Where it's like, we are always putting ourselves at this standard, like, Oh, I have to be the best in the room, blah, blah, blah. When they could really show up, say a cuss word or two, and they'll get, they'll be like, Oh my gosh, they're so funny. It's so funny that he just, he's just like that. You know, no, I'm just like that too, for real. Like I know what I'm talking about. Um, but I don't have to deliver in a certain way to be taken seriously. So, I think when that switched for me was professionally was just being so done with um, being underestimated and my, sorry, I'm getting really upset being underestimated in my prior job when I was in emergency medicine and I was working under a female and she asked me to assume a position that was higher than mine. And I went to her office because she sent me an email about it. And I said, if I'm to take this position, I will be in charge of more people what will be my pay increase? And she looked at me and she said, you got some nerve asking if you'll get some more money. And I was baffled. I was so baffled. I just, I was like, you know what? Like, 
I'm not compromising like my pay or who I am for any of these people. Like you're going to pay me for what you want the deliverable to be. Like, let's be honest, work is very transactional, although you may be passionate about it. It's about how much they're willing to compensate you for the value of the work that you're able to produce. And so if that's all that matters at the end of the day, I can show up myself because you'll still get, you know, the deliverable at the end of the day and I can still get my check and everybody will be happy. And everybody is harping on diversity. There's diversity in image, diversity in influence, thought, and how you show up. And I feel like showing up as your authentic self is doing nothing but taking away from the narrative, like the perpetuated narrative of like bad stereotypes for black and brown populations by being like, you know, I can show up this way too and get the job done just like anybody else. I want to dive deep into, uh, you know, your interest in public health. Um, and, and where it all started, I guess. So did you always know you were going to pursue a path in public health? No. Um, at Marquette, I I want to be a psychologist. And it's very competitive, especially straight out of undergrad, to get into PhD programs to pursue that. So I, I applied to 14 schools. I got interviewed at three. I got accepted to two. I got accepted to one PhD program and it was all the way out in Emory and um, I mean, not Emory, Berkeley. So the other way, California and um, Emory is where I wanted to go, but um, I couldn't do it. I, I got cold feet. Um, I have Crohn's disease and I was so scared of, leaving my GI at the time because I still had my PHGI and I had kind of recently been diagnosed and was on um, an infusion drug that took a long time to like, I had to, you had to sit for infusion for like six hours. So even though I could have like migrated my care, I was just nervous to like start my adulthood on my own by myself, you know, so far away from my family and my healthcare and I didn't go. So then I, that's when I started working at, um, at Rush. Um, at Rush, I, I was considering medical school and mostly because the physician that I worked under, similar to you, Larry, was like, I could I kind of identify with him and his passion, not um, racially, but I could identify with his passion. He and I spoke the same language when it came to like wanting to care for people and um, wanting to create sustainable, like um, projected future plans for people to live, you know, in better circumstances than we live in today. And he almost influenced me to take the MCAT until I started studying for it. And I hated it. So I did not pursue that. Um, I didn't really know I wanted to go into public health until I was in emergency medicine here at MCW in my second job. And, and even then, I wanted to be on the preparedness side. Like I wanted to work either in public health corps, which is an arm of the army, and be like a response. Like that, they have people who are responding to Maui right now, you know, to help those people similar to like FEMA, but they're actual like formal officers. So I thought that I wanted to do that. Um, and I knew I had to pursue a degree to do that. So that's kind of what got me into it, but it's always been a call to like help people. Um, usually it's initially started as like an, in that, that people that need like acute, like immediate help. Um, but now like after getting my MPH and actually pursuing the degree, I was able to like really understand that I want to inform like my 
macro level change. So that would be considered like micro level change. But I want to inform like policy level change um, to confront like structural racism. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I like. I read one of the articles that you recently um, published, and it was talking about the essentially the nexus between race and healthcare and things like that. I wanted to see if you could just talk about like your view on how we can improve as a society um, the disparities that currently uh, plague, you know, black people or diverse people, people of color for that nature. Mm -hmm. That's a big question. That's, um, that's how I ask them. <laughs> um, I would say um, the first thing, the biggest thing that we're learning right now and that I think is essential to addressing any sort of health disparity is humility, cultural humility. Prior to the term being humility, it was cultural competency. But um, it's been frowned upon recently because you can be competent in something and not really relate to it or fully understand it. Um, having humility, if you lead with humility, you will be open to understanding and have find a point of relation. And even if you can't relate, you are able to empathize. Um, so I feel like starting with that, there's so much work that has to be undone. There's so many things that have to be unlearned, especially from the generations like that are immediately in front of us that I feel like it's making it harder for us to do that sort of work. A lot of people um, that are public health professionals know what, I'm, what I mean when I say that. It's just like, if you would just retire and let me just, you know, take over this program, I know where the need is. Like, um, I think a lot of people get comfortable in silos in public health. It's really easy to do that, especially when you have a government funding system and they want you to check certain boxes. There's an agenda for everything. You can have all the passion in the world, but if you have to check certain boxes and the way that the government wants you to use those dollars and do those things, it's harder, makes your job even harder. So that kind of is what I'm talking about for like the generations that are like immediately in front of us. Um, but yeah, I would say to answer that, just a lot of understanding. And honestly, one thing that is so, um, this kind of like grinds my gears a lot when I talk about these subjects is people think that they can like um, have have like a session and like session their way out of this. Oh, you just need to take implicit bias training and they can train their way out of like these um, these behaviors, you know, that are so ingrained in how people have been raised and how they act. And you can't do that. I mean, it has to start with the inside work. You know, you have to be committed to wanting to help people genuinely, wanting to understand people outside of you identifying with them, whether it be racially, economically, or educationally. You have to genuinely want just best for your neighbor, period. And, and that's why I answered with um, cultural humility, just because I think that if we don't get that down, we're not going to be able to do anything else um, further. Like we wouldn't be able to further any sort of agenda to actually combat racial and ethnic, you know, disparities that we're experiencing now. Because it's just that it's 
what's happening is that people in these positions dehumanize these people. And it's like, well, you know, if they wanted to, they would have. They would have got themselves out of that circumstance. And it's not on me at this point when really it should be a warm handoff as to like, you know, I'm not sure what led you here, but let me give let me give you a hand up and not a handout. You know, let me let me tell you, OK, right now, like if say if I'm a physician, if a mother comes in and she's talk, she's there to see her like for her for herself. Right. But then just in conversation from me being pleasant to her and like being an obviously like trusted source just having open conversation outside of whatever her medical ailment is. And she opens up and tells me that she had issues getting there that day. And she doesn't think that she'll be able to make her follow appointment. Me, I would assume then the responsibility, if I had the access or the power to help her in that situation, help close that gap, then that's what needs to happen. But that's not going to come unless people have the humility in the first place. They're not going to want to take that extra step for somebody that they don't know if they just keep dehumanizing them, categorizing them because it's comfortable to them. And they're able to get, you know, take themselves out of the situation and say, you know what, I solved the issue. I closed the case and that's it. I guess how does this idea of cultural humility uh, play a role in Wisconsin? Like, how do you see it playing out or what are some of the things that you've noticed I think that it's a long battle. I really do. We talk about this a lot, especially like in my doctorate program. Um, it's hard subject to talk about because I'm in a national doctorate program and it's all online. So a lot of people that I work with live in California and these are things that they just don't, aren't issues to them. They have racial disparities, but they aren't as stark as ours. And um, even when they're talking about stuff, they're like, well, why don't you just do this? Or why don't you just do that? You know, and it's such an easy fix for them. But for us, it's just so there's such a historical semblance to like what has been beneficial economically for the majority of the population, the white population, and how that has been at the deficit of economic disadvantage and and, and um, health disadvantage, health outcome disadvantage for black populations. And that essentially is like why I'm doing my dissertation because I've noticed that if there is clear, there is no clear like nice return on investment to invest in black populations seemingly, this is not my belief, to seemingly invest in black populations because it would take away from the economic advantage of the white populations here. And I mean, I'm talking about generational wealth. I don't think I, we ever had you define like what is public health. Can you just give me like a working definition of what public health is? What I do is not like classic public health. Like when people think of public health practitioners, they think of like, oh, they're going to remind me to get my flu vaccine. You know, it's August. I'm going to be getting that that letter in September, um, I don't work on a local health department level. That's kind of like what they handle. Like if there is like acute infectious disease outbreak, like Ebola, those are the professionals that are going to be handling that kind of thing. What I do, so I do research. Um, I provide what's called a public health lens to inform our research and make sure it is 
um, novel and it is appropriate and um, relates to the entire population that we're talking about. So by definition, I'm a population um, health scientist. I write research. Um, I also write funding for research. I do um, stats and interpretation and translational research. So that's all to inform like interventions, like proposed interventions that should happen to alleviate some sort of disparity like we were talking about earlier. But the research and the numbers have to be there to inform the, the proposed intervention. So I'm on the research side and the translational side. I am not on the intervention side. You mentioned that you're pursuing uh, your, your doctoral degree um, and you've referenced the fact that you're working on, I believe, a dissertation. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what exactly uh, you're pursuing. So um, for my dissertation topic, um, overall, I'm interested in the racial wealth gap and how that has informed and perpetuated disproportionate um, death rates or mortality amongst the Black population in Milwaukee. So my theory is that because of lack of access to wealth or assets for so many years, um, the wealth gap has done nothing but widen. Even in times where there could have been instances, like, it's like right, like post, there was an instance during um, the Great Migration where it could have been lessened because um, a lot of Black people were moving up to you know up places like industrial cities like Milwaukee from the South and they were securing good jobs, they were securing nice houses, and imagine if those houses and those assets, how much they'll be worth today, you know. So my theory is that um, because of the structural um, discrimination and racism that's been, that Black people have paced, play, I mean, faced, particularly in Milwaukee because of the stark segregation, that there is an underlying like loss in generational wealth. And because of that, there is also um, higher mortality rates and disease rates for preventable diseases like cardiovascular disease in black populations. Um, I have since narrowed that down. That was a very large concept. And like I said before, my degree program is accelerated. So I do not have like six years to write this or research it. And um, I'm actually very happy with what I've done in like the past week for narrowing it down. And it's a little hard to talk about, but um, I um, earlier this year, I um, did genetic testing because my mother had breast cancer and had a double mastectomy because of the breast cancer. And I was told that I should get genetic testing to see if I was positive for something called the BRCA2 gene. And if you are positive, that means that you have a, which is a genetic mutation, you know, in your genetic code. Um, and if you are positive, then you have a 60% chance or greater of developing breast cancer at some point in your life. And so I tested positive and um, um, I shared that with my the chair of my dissertation committee, who she does a lot of uh, breast cancer research 
um, and, and how that intersects with structural racism um, here in Milwaukee. And I shared that with her and she said, I have the perfect project for you. You know, I'm, I've been working and doing all these interviews with about survivorship, you know, of black women who have had cancers in um, Milwaukee, in particular zip codes. And so now I'm using that lens as my, you know, for what, for as my health outcome. So how has the um, wealth, racial wealth gap informed disproportionate survival rates of breast cancer for black women in Milwaukee? And so it's something I'm very passionate about, obviously. I mean, my mother had breast cancer. I'm looking at a picture of my grandmother right now, and I helped her through her transition um, with breast cancer. Um, and she had a double mastectomy as well. And I used to, I did everything. She lived right next door to me and I would, I have memories, you know, of course, of running across the grass every day, getting some, like getting food. We go over there every weekend, obviously every holiday was spent there. And then when she became ill, like, um, yeah, she, I was right there for her, like one of, one of her main caretakers along with my mom and her sister. So um, I'm very happy about doing something that means so much to me that would have like, you know, an immediate impact I know on lives and the, it's research that is needed and needs to be done so that more informed decisions like getting tested genetically like I did can be done. So more preventive surgery can be done as well. So, yes. No, we, we definitely appreciate the the transparency uh, and vulnerability around that for sure. So is the idea, I'm just trying to, again, I, I don't come from this world at all, right? So I'm trying to connect the dots. Is the idea that, you know, the better we can address some of the systemic uh, issues, uh, the more likely it is that, you know, more folks that look like us will have access to, to fair and equitable um, Health care, is that kind of the, the idea? or Healthcare and early detection. I mean, particularly mm -hmm. with what I'm studying, mm -hmm. even though cancer isn't, cancer is technically not preventable because like I have a genetic mutation, like I will get that, I will get some form of cancer, whether it be that or um, in my tubes. So um it is so that you can take action. Like now I'm having to have preventative. I have an entire other team of doctors that I have to meet with now twice a year to do additional screenings and to talk about um, uh, preventative surgery for that. And as if the sooner, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, colon cancer for black males. The sooner you know, the better so that you can act on it. And my particular research is along with that same notion that, you know, knowledge is power. I know that may sound corny, but honestly, like technology, the, I am a woman of faith and the Lord gave us science to be able to, you know, figure out and preserve ourselves so we can continue to do the, his work here on earth. And I'm a strong believer of that. Um, there's a cl clear line that I am definitely a woman of faith and there is no blurred lines when it comes to like, I know that I have a reason. I know I've been equipped with the resources and the knowledge and, um, you know, the experiences I've had so far in my career to make these sort of informed decisions. And because I have this information, I just want to give it to everybody else that may not believe in it. I feel like I'm a trusted source 
when it comes to something like this. I am able to empathize with people. Like I see people as individuals and all I want is for people to have the knowledge to make good informed decisions about their health care and to know where the accessibility is and how to get it. I guess I'm wondering like what's what what's your why, right? Like I'm sitting there, I'm learning a lot about you to be honest with you, but it's all right. Your, your father was a pharmacist, you know, you live with and manage Crohn's disease. You also mm-hmm. talked about the role or the impact breast cancer has had in your life. And now you're sitting sort of in, in a medical college pursuing a doctoral degree, like in science, essentially. So just like, do you think your life experiences have sort of pushed you to this arena or just talk about your why, I guess? Um, so I joke about this, but it's also very true. I have high functioning anxiety. I feel like I always have to be doing something and pushing myself to the next level. And um, it's something that I battled with because I'm like, when am I going to be comfortable? You know, like I, I knew I was going to be pregnant when I put this application in for this DRPH. I knew that I was going to be on maternity leave and postpartum when I started pursuing it. But I like to push myself that way. And it's because I learn the most about myself when I do push myself, um, when I do add on like one more thing, just when I don't think that I can do it any longer, I push myself like even more. And I think my why really came um, after experiencing like traumatic loss in my family um, a couple of times with my cousins and uh, due due to gun violence and some other things. And, experiencing traumatic loss from like a couple of my close friends from high school. And it really made me want to have a zeal and a reason for life. And knowing that if I don't push myself today and just do it, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And now it's even more emphasized in my life because I have two young girls that look up to me and I want them to be able to be, you know, not settle and to, constantly set the standard for themselves and not let others set it for them. And so I believe my why really came from like the fragility of life and knowing that it's not promised and the um, me being the risk of scaring myself, not scaring myself, but being disappointed in myself and looking back, you know, you hear so many times people be like, Oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish it would have done that. My mother even says that. And I said, I don't want to look back and say those things. On my last breath, I want to, you know, say my thanks and make my peace with God and tell him, thank you for putting this in me to be able to do all these things. And hopefully hopefully the legacy of like how I've done things lives on and like through my girls and that they are able to incorporate some of that into their lives without having to experience traumatic loss, but just because I was the example for them. Mm. Damn. <laughs> that's, you, you, uh, I don't even know what to say, to be honest. That, that's, that's deep. Um, you know, as you were talking, I mean, I, I don't think we ever touched on this, but really the, the premise of the podcast is that you can use education to better your situation. But the other component really is, uh, to give, you know, folks uh, that are pursuing sort of, I would say, non-traditional paths or just paths that don't get glorified uh, mm-hmm. to give them their flowers. Right. And so I guess I'm wondering um, 
how would you sell like a 16 year old Jasmine on a career in public health? Ooh, that's crazy because I used to want to be a veterinarian at that age. Um, I would say like, hey, do you do you know how your friends like ate last night? Do you know, do you care about your friend's parents? Do you care about, you know, your best friends, like um, their life, maybe like five years from now? And my answer probably be like, yeah, like I'd do anything for them. You know, honestly, Larry, like I've always just wanted to help people and I didn't care what that looked like. Um, I probably would just say like, this is a great way to help a lot of people all at once. Like even people that you don't even know, you know, and the health of other people has always been something that's very positional in my, like in the forefront of my life. So I think that's what I would say is like, here's an opportunity to help a whole bunch of people all at once and you won't even know them. And you, it'll probably affect generations. Like even after that, like you'll help their kids. So I think that I'll be really excited about something like that. Um, but that's what I basically would say. No, that that's spot on. I mean, again, like I feel like so many kids that I talk to, I don't talk to a ton of kids, but the ones I do that they mentioned, uh, being a social media influencer or, or, you know, things like that. And it's like, no, we need more Jasmine's. We need more people <laughs> pursuing uh, degrees in public health and, and with, you know, the background and lens that you have that you're putting into this research. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no. So I just want to commend you for what you're doing. Thank you. It's funny you say that, Larry, because I, I wonder if that's been added to like the, how everybody was like, oh, I want to be in the NBA or, you know, I want to be in some sports or, rapper drug dealer i wonder if like this next generation like TikTok or influencer is like a goal or uh you know i don't know i guess i haven't talked to enough kids to, to know but i wonder if that's like become a thing because it is it makes it that much harder to sell people or sell the next generation even our generation on like the ideas we try to present right because it's it's another hurdle because I mean you could have a viral video go crazy and you have sponsorships, partnerships, you have a bunch of stuff come up. Um, and it's like hitting a lotto almost, you know, rather than putting in hard work to to make something. It's interesting. One thing I wanted to ask you about is just like what's it like raising two daughters um, and you know maintaining your current role because i would imagine it's it's very stressful but you know having kids who are rather young um i could imagine it's it's a tough balance so how do you balance that as a mom and as a director um so yes i have a four-year-old and a one-year-old um and it is very hard i get overstimulated probably like when i come home from work I probably get overstimulated like three or four times within the three hours that I'm home prior to bedtime, which is not a lot of time to the point where I feel like screaming, like, you know, cause it's like, as soon as I hit the door, it's, I'm the only person that matters and they, I have to do everything. And I would say that I balance it because I have a phenomenal partner. Like there's no way that I would be able to pursue another degree Um, with our children being this young, if Brent wasn't just on board with everything, if he wasn't as much of a parent that I am, 
Like it definitely is a partnership. And if he wasn't able to take up the brunt of the load, like this week, Brent has done probably 75% to 80% of the parenting duties because I had orientation all week. I came home pretty late because I was going to the social activities afterwards. Maybe like I come home like eight or nine and they're asleep. But that means bedtime has happened, you know, baths happen, everything. But so he does that even when I'm in class. Um, he assumes those positions and those roles. Like he very, we are very much partners where it's like, you know, this is your time that you have to like sew into yourself and I'm going to take up for that. Um, and, you know, do majority of the parenting. And then there's other times where it's just a compromise, you know, where it may be both of us or maybe just me. So I would say the balance really comes from the blessing of me having a phenomenal partner. And I would say if it was anybody else trying to do something like this, just make sure your support system is in place, especially if you are a parent, because they depend on you. They don't know what life is like without you. And that's not their fault. You know, it's really easy to be overstimulated and want to yell at them because they're asking you the same question eight different times within the span of like five minutes. But that's why like, having a support system is like definitely there's no there's no way you'd be able to do it without it at all. No, thank you. I, I agree with that. I think the support system is everything. I mean, you can't there's no way you could, you know, operate at a high level and, you know, go home and then like your kids don't give a damn about what happened. They're just happy that you're, you're home. So I, I feel that the other question I had was. I guess what what is the goal for you? Like, what is the next steps that you see yourself taking to get to, you know, whatever destination you thought of? Mm -hmm. um, so, I have been very upfront and blunt with my department um, about that. We've recently had another conversation about that. So, I would like to make faculty here. I would like to receive a faculty appointment. Um, a research faculty appointment through my department once I graduate. And I feel like I'm on a good path to be able to do something like that or pursue something like that. So like what, what role does like academic research ultimately play in like addressing health equity? Like just cl close that gap for me. Okay. Academic research informs interventions that you would see you know, actually play out like programs that will become available or that are up for funding. So there's always data behind why something is implemented or even data behind why something is taken away from either public programming, private programming or anything that is offered. Um, it's very easy to think of it this way in the terms of like cancer, therapeutic drugs or interventions. We provide we have provided seed funding and preliminary data through my research platform for one of our head and neck surgeons to be able to do genetic um, testing on his patients and be able to find certain, I don't even want to say this, it's very haphazard to say this, not cures, but remedies for certain cancers. So because he had that data, he was able then to extrapolate it and then find an actual remedy for like a, like two or three different patients. But that was like an actual cure for the sort of cancer that they were experiencing at that time. Um, so yeah, I would say that I'm on like the more, if you're thinking of it in a stream, I'm more upstream. 
downstream is like the actual, like someone receiving a service and so, or someone receiving, you know, a prescription or a drug to help their ailment. Would you say that we're in a crisis right now, a public health crisis? Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. <laughs> why? Wait, yeah. why? How so? Everything is failing us. Um, people are sick. Their um, doctors are burnt out. Um, a lot of a lot of students, like medical professionals, aren't seeking certain specialty residencies that are critical to response, like emergency response. Emergency medicine residencies are down when you compare to prior to COVID. So a lot of people used to seek the specialty of emergency medicine and want to be an ED doc. That is still happening, but like not at the rates that they were seeing before. So what if you if you if that trajects into like the future, we aren't going to have any as many doctors as we have now to care for as many people that are going to be sick. And especially with um, side effects from like long COVID, like there, we have a lot of patients here that have things from when they had long COVID, like permanent ailments that are just not going to go away um, and things that they have to deal with now for the rest of their lives. And they are relatively young and still have a lot of life to live. So there's, there's a huge, um, there's a lot of pressure on the medical system right now. Um, and honestly, I think it needs to be taken more seriously. Um, there needs to be more acute relief for that. But if we don't have the manpower for it, if you generally don't have the people going into it, I'm not sure where that leaves us. So that is the crisis that we are currently facing. Where can people find like your, your written work and, and, and things like that? So I am on Google Scholar. I am also on a site called PubMed. If you type in my name, you'll see all the publications that I have been a part of. I am not necessarily written. I know this is going to sound weird. So in academia, there's a lot of authors on publications. And just to be clear, I am not saying that I am first author on all of these. I am first. I hold first authorship because I made significant contributions to the manuscript, but I made contributions just like all the other authors that you would see listed on those publications. Dope. One thing I, when you were talking about um, just your role in the overall healthcare streamline, I, mm -hmm. so I just, I, I don't want to deter us, but I just watched Painkiller yesterday, or yeah. I missed it yesterday. And just like how important um, like research is and its reliance to then get approved for certain drugs or testings i didn't realize like how um how important it is to come from like a journal that actually means something right like the, it it i didn't i guess i wasn't i didn't realize how many bureaucrats and things like that politics played a role i mean of course i assume so mm -hmm. but i guess watching that it was on netflix watching that show i was just like god damn like how in hindsight you're like how could this happen you know, like how could, how could it, how could it not be picked up? But in mm -hmm. when it's practically when it's happening in practice, I could see how people are just like whatever. You know, like the, the greed, the greed of uh, society could just overwhelm or overweigh, outweigh how greed could outweigh, um, you know, actual public assistance or. Mm -hmm. 
I think that it's the greed. I think that it's um, the country that we live in, the race to be first and the best. So we look at something like oxycodone or um, oxycotton, and it would seem to be a cure-all, especially when in 1996 they recognized pain as the sixth vital sign um, to know like what's going on with somebody. And so, yeah, like it was like, okay, what can we do? Like if we're saying that, like we have to find a cure for it. And then they just started giving everybody oxycodone and then created an, an epidemic. You know, they didn't know that they knew that it was um, highly addictive, but at the same time, it's always chasing the dollar, like you said, Tom, right? Like being greedy in a way, not realizing the repercussions, like, um, and outweighing the money with the repercussions just because there's a huge incentive to make more money in coming years. So yeah, it is, it's essential. It's, it's something that is not to be taken lightly. It's why grants are highly scrutinized for what you were going to be using your dollars for, but it's also why the research process is so long and tough because you you have to, everything has to be backed up by something. And it's really a protection for the protection of who is going to be receiving that information and using it to inform whatever they're trying to get out. I think we're still in it, right? Like I actually, uh, I don't know if you heard my, my sister's boyfriend just overdosed on like perks uh friday in milwaukee yeah it's crazy and it's one of those things that like it was the first time where i was like yo guys getting creative and like i've had some of every kind of tragedy and like the opioid thing is something that you would see like celebrities dying from like fentanyl mm -hmm. and things like that and you would hear like oh so-and-so overdosed um but to like have it hit home i was just like god damn like this is and then to watch painkiller and things like that, it was one of those like wake up moments where, you know, the same thing that kind of was going on with like Oxycontin back then, it's like, it's still happening. It's just like a different drug or like a different version of it, which is unfortunate, um, but it, it definitely, it hit home a little different. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of things that are plaguing our society our people um it's just it's just hard to see like the silver lining in it all you know but it is the work yeah. is very tiring it feels like you're like hitting a brick wall over yeah. and over again sometimes especially working with our people because the trauma and the historical racism is so multi-dimensional and generational that it literally like rears his ugly head in so many different forms, especially through coping mechanisms, just like showing up every day is hard. The easier thing to do is to numb it. Mm -hmm. And um, what becomes even more um, damaging is that you have social media to normalize that numbing of that trauma and not actually really dealing with it in the appropriate way. Um, and what has also been normalized is not talking about mental health in a serious manner. And that is a terrible mixture of things that is not going to result in anything good. Um, so, yeah, I think you hit a spot on tone. It's just, it's unfortunate. It's hard to deal with, especially identifying with people 
you know, identifying with our people that have gone through so much and knowing it and like being able to like feel that and like you don't have to talk you don't have to actually know a, a black person's story to be able to like I mean there's a reason why there's unspoken greetings like when we walk in a room right it's it's an acknowledgement of a presence and we know what's going on we you know we're able to read between the lines or I got you type of thing even walking past the hallway. I mean, it, it could just be a cultural thing of like, you know, you say hello to a little black person when you walk in the hallway. I know I make a point too, because I'm seeing and recognizing their presence, right? Um, but at the same time that you know that, you know all of the other stuff behind it as well. You know, you know that without them having to say it, that their experience has been glaringly different than somebody who doesn't look like them. Um, and all those other intricacies of like mental health and stuff like that. Thanks. Thank you, Jasmine. You're you're a great friend. Um, you're you're a great role model for the city. Uh, I just want to take time to say thank you for taking time out of your busy day um, to hop on this podcast, give back, and, and just have a conversation, an honest conversation, um, with us and and our listeners. So with that, you know, I, I just want to say thank you, and you know. Well, we'll be in touch. It's not like yeah. I won't see. So, but thank you for, you know, hopping on the pod. I appreciate both of you. I look up to both of you. I can honestly and truly say that the two of you were some of the most influential people in my lives when I, in my life when I was in college, and it is so cool to see you guys where you are now and knowing where you came from. I truly, I truly, truly, truly admire you both. I love you both. I want the best for you both. And I'm always here for you. <laughs>